Now, I, uh, I wonder if uh, you've ever done something foolish. I wonder if you've ever done something stupid that you realised later on was a really foolish thing to do. I've got to be honest with you, I, I've done quite a lot of foolish things in my life. Uh, I learned, for example, uh, when I was five years of age, that running up and down the hall of the house that I grew up in, in my Wellington boots, with a glass front door, was not a really good idea. I learned it was foolish because as I slipped at the end of the, uh, of the hall and uh, went face first through the glass front door and cut a big hole in my lip which poured blood everywhere, I learned that it is a foolish thing to do to run up and down the hall uh, in your Wellington boots. And I still have the scar here today on my lip to remind me of where they had put stitches in and everything. I learned yesterday that it is a foolish thing to do in our house to lean over to turn off a particular power socket because this power socket in our house is next to a rocking chair. And I learned it's a foolish thing to do to lean over to turn the power socket off while treading on the foot of the rocking chair and rocking it forward as you lean down and smacking you in the face. I learned that it is a foolish thing to do to turn the power socket off in that particular way. I wonder, as well as doing things foolish that do indeed turn out to be very foolish, you've ever done something in your life or seen somebody do something that appeared foolish to everybody else but was in fact something incredible and turned out in an amazing way. Uh, I used to be, uh, 11 or so years ago, I used to be a management consultant. That's what I did in my career. And then about uh, 11 years ago, I decided that I would retrain to be a church leader. And I had to go and tell the people that I was working with and for that this is what I was going to do. And I was quite nervous about doing it. And I went to my immediate boss and I told him, I said, this is what I was going to do. I was going to give up work and uh, go and train, go back to college for three years, no money, and train to be a church leader. And my boss thought this was such a foolish thing to do that he thought the only reason why I would have mentioned it to him was because I wanted a pay rise, and this was a crafty way to get a pay rise. So foolish was this idea. So he offered me a pay rise, and I said, no, I'm not quite sure you understand that uh, I'm leaving. So having done that, he thought that this was foolish, so he then told the uh, head of the company that I worked for, And so I got a phone call. The head of the company phoned up and said, please, can I see you? I said, yes, no problem. So I went to see him, and uh, he had a conversation with me about what I was going to do. And this appeared so foolish to him that he thought this must be some kind of way to train to do better at my job of management consultancy. So he said, oh, that's no problem. We'd love to sponsor you through college. I thought, fantastic. So I started to explain to him how they would have to do that. And then you could see the kind of cogs going in his mind. And he suddenly realized what we were really talking about. And he said, ah, yes, you're probably not going to come back when you've done that, are you? And I said, well, no, probably not. And he said, yeah, I'm not sure we'd pay for that quite. So, uh, having been excited. So he thought that was very foolish as well. So foolish that he imagined I must be doing something that would be some kind of MBA or something like that. And then I had to go and tell the client that I was working for. And uh, the client was a big supermarket. And I won't mention their names, but if you went up the road, turned right at the Hilton, you'd discover them. Uh, and I was working for, for that particular supermarket chain uh, as a consultant and I had to go and tell the client that I was working for that I was going to have to come to the end of my contract with them uh, because I was going to college to train to be a church leader. And so foolish to disappear to him that he just laughed in my face. That was what he did. So everybody thought this was just a completely foolish and ridiculous thing to do. Now, I will leave it for you to judge whether it turned out okay or not, whether it was indeed a foolish thing to do. You can talk, if you're a visitor, you can talk to people who come here regularly about whether 
that was a wise thing to do or not, and they'll let you know. But from my point of view, it was the best thing I ever did. So it appeared foolish to everybody else. But for me, this journey that I've been on has just been incredible. It's the best thing that I've ever done. So sometimes we do foolish things that are just foolish. Sometimes we do things that appear foolish to everybody else that actually turn out to be incredibly powerful. And uh, as we start this encounter series that we're doing this morning, we're working our way through the months that we'll do this series together through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter the guy called Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to one of the very first churches. And uh, he talks in the bit we're going to look at today about foolishness and wisdom and about how things that perhaps look wise may indeed be foolish and vice versa. Things that look foolish may in fact turn out to be incredible things. But before we read it, and I'll, and I'll read a particular bit of the letter that we're going to look at, before I read that to you, you need to understand something about the background of this church in this place called Corinth 2,000 years ago that Paul is writing to. We need to try and understand a little bit about that to under, help us understand what this letter says. So I want you for a moment to imagine a church racked by divisions. One of the leaders of this church is having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in faith to behave in such a way. The Christians in the church, many of them are suing each other in the secular courts. Some of them like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against that kind of behaviour, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for everyone. And that, they say, is the Christian ideal. If you're a Christian, then that's how you've got to live. Other debates rage in the church about how new Christians should or should not break from their pagan past. There are disagreements about the roles of men and women in the church, adding to the confusion. And if all that were not enough, prophecies and speaking in tongues were occurring regularly, but usually in a deconstructive fashion, not in a constructive one. And a significant number of the Christians in that church didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So that's what's going on in this church in Corinth. Now I think I see churches from time to time that have got themselves in a bit of a mess. Nothing compared to this. Churches, our church and churches these days appear positively angelic compared to what was going on in this church. And it seems that these issues that were going on in this church in Corinth stemmed from one or two key issues. First of all, many of the people in the church were marked by arrogance and immaturity. They thought they were very mature. But as is often the case, those who think they're mature are often the most immature. And certainly that's true when it comes to faith. And so many of these people at church in Corinth thought they were incredibly mature and wise Christian people. But in fact, they were behaving in a very immature way. So those of us who would consider ourselves to be mature Christians, we have to be very careful about whether we're being honest with ourselves or not. The second key issue that was going on in Corinth is that people wanted to have a foot in both camps. They wanted to have a foot in the camp of the world, if you like, doing the things that were very common and uh, accepted in Greek society. Uh, they wanted to have a foot in that camp but they also wanted to have a foot in the sort of spiritual camp, in the Christian camp. They wanted to live with both together, even though some of the things that were going on in Greek culture were not acceptable uh, for the Christian. And of course, that is a trap that we, particularly in the West, we fall into 
many times. We like our material comforts and the trappings of our world, and so we cling to them rather than submitting them to God. So that's some of the background to what is going on in this very mixed-up church in Corinth that Paul is writing to. And so I'm just going to read you a part now of Paul's letter. It comes from chapter 1. And it says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, nor many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. So that's a part of the letter that Paul is writing to these people in this situation. And the passage that I read, it puts forth the contrast between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world, Paul says, and particularly of the world at Corinth, was based around intellectual understanding. The Greeks, many of whom were living in Corinth, were very into intellectual things and philosophy. And so they were seeking for meaning and for wisdom in intellectual things, in philosophical things. And Paul is saying that's where they're searching. The Jews, again, many of whom lived in Corinth, they searched for meaning and wisdom in other things. They were looking out for a Messiah, the one who would come to save them. And they were expecting the Messiah to be some kind of warrior king who would come and throw out the Romans who were occupying their lands and set them free. And so Paul says, there is foolishness here. Because what some think of as wisdom, the wisdom of the world... Some are looking there, intellectual, philosophy, material things, and they're not finding it. But they think that's wisdom. They think that's where the wisdom of the world is to be found. Some, the Jews, are looking for some kind of miraculous sign, some kind of Messiah figure to come. That's where they're looking for wisdom. And so Paul gives these two distinct examples of where people are looking for their wisdom. But Paul says... That isn't where wisdom is to be found. And again, if we fast forward 2,000 years, our culture is very like the culture of Corinth. The people are on the search for meaning. They're on the search for philosophical things. They're on the search for spirituality. We know that because lots of surveys tell us that people are increasingly interested in spiritual things. And you only have to listen to a celebrity interview these days 
something like Madonna, to find out that she is experimenting with all kinds of spiritual things. Kabbalah she's into, isn't she? And she's been on this journey. And, and you hear other people talking about the spirituality of things. We read recently the tragic news about John Travolta's uh, son, teenage son, dying. Well, John Travolta is a spiritualist and very into spiritual things. So people are on the lookout for the spiritual, just like they were in Corinth. People are looking for wisdom and spirituality in all kinds of different ways. And of course, again, as a culture, we tend to put our hope in material things and in the pursuit and acquisition of material comforts. Again, very like the people in Corinth. But Paul says there isn't actually wisdom to be found in those things, not ultimately. They may give short-term gain, but long-term wisdom is not to be found there. And Paul says, there is another place where we can go to look for wisdom. He says, but actually this place, this other place that we can go to look for wisdom, appears foolish. Just like it appeared to everybody I was talking to when I gave up my job, foolishness to go and do this thing. This thing where real wisdom is to be found, says Paul, appears to be really foolish. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross appears foolish. And what Paul is talking about is the cross that Jesus went to, where Jesus was crucified. And Paul is saying this cross where Jesus was crucified appears foolish. And actually, when you think about it, it's quite easy to understand that, that it does indeed appear foolish, that God would somehow choose this method to let people know how much he loves them, does indeed, at first view, appear to be foolish. I mean, how can one man, dying on a cross 2,000 years ago, in an obscure place in the back end of nowhere, with no internet, no TV news coverage to let people know it's happening, how can that possibly be the method that God would choose to show people that he loved them? When you think about it, it is foolishness. It makes no sense. Imagine for a moment that you or I were God. And we were sitting up here somewhere and we thought to ourselves, we want to let the human race know that we love them. God's saying, I want to let the human race know that there is a way for them to be restored in their relationship with me. Imagine you were in God's shoes just for one minute. What would you choose to do that? How would you choose to make that happen? I suspect very few, if any of us, would choose to send a man to a cross to show that that was happening. And yet Paul says, what appears foolish, the cross, is in fact the power of God. Paul says that it is saving power. And so I wonder how that works. The logical next question. It appears foolish. So how can this cross where Jesus hung, how can that indeed be power? Well, I think many of us, a Christian or non-Christian, miss out on the power of the cross because we fail to see or understand or try to comprehend what was really going on there. Now, you see, it would indeed be foolish for one man to go to a cross and say, here I am, setting everybody free, reconciling everybody to God, showing that God loves people. That would be foolish unless that person going to the cross were God's son. And then it might not be so foolish. Because then it might be evidence of how much God loves us, that he would be willing to send his son to die on a cross. 
that might not be so foolish. And of course, the Christian believes that Jesus was indeed God's son. And that when he went to the cross, he was doing so to demonstrate how much God loves us. That God would be willing to give his son to die on a cross for us. So maybe there's power in the recognition of who it was who was actually dying on the cross that day. God's son. But then there's power in recognising what the cross was all about. And the cross is a a multifaceted thing. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there were a whole load of different things that were going on. First of all, those things that would separate us from God. So you and I have things in our lives, we all do, that we wish we didn't do that we do, or we wish we hadn't done that we did do, or that we say that we shouldn't have done, or that we don't say that we should have done. And the Christian calls those sin. And uh, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said it was so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could be restored in our relationship with God. That's the power of the cross, if we believe that. That our sins can be forgiven and our relationship with God can be restored. Now that in and of itself would mean the cross was quite a powerful thing. But it is much more than just that. I mean, that would be enough. But it is more even than that. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he showed that evil people won't have the last laugh. Because evil people hung him on the cross. And when he came back to life three days later, he showed that evil does not get the last word. So he showed through the cross that God ultimately has victory over evil. And there is power in that. There is power in that for us. Where we live in a world where we see evil around us. We see people prepared to fly planes into towers to kill people. And we see people prepared to blow themselves up to kill people. And we see countries firing on other countries and invading other countries and stopping humanitarian aid coming in. There is evil at work in our world. And it can lead us to despair. And yet if we believe that the cross has the power to show that ultimately God has the victory over evil, then there is indeed real power there. But the cross does more even than that. Because on the cross, God's Son hung in amazing pain suffering in an unbelievable way and so that means that God can say to us I know what it means to suffer I identify with you when you're suffering so if we're going through hard times the power of the cross is there to remind us that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer God knows what it's like to suffer and can stand alongside us but there's more even than that Jesus believed when he was on the cross that he was setting people free He was liberating them. And so we can be set free through the power of the cross. We can be set free from guilt and fear, enslavement to sin. And there is more even than that. Because on the cross, Jesus was demonstrating God's sacrificial love. He was showing how much God loves us. So there is tremendous power in the cross if we believe those things about it. And there is no doubt, I mean, no serious historian doubts that Jesus went to the cross and died there 2,000 years ago. Uh, There is lots of historical evidence for that. The question for us is whether we believe that that was just a man going to a cross and then it is indeed foolishness that a man goes there and that's that. That is indeed foolishness. Or whether we believe it was God's Son going there, in which case there is tremendous power. There is tremendous power. 
And so Paul is saying the things that so often the people of Corinth and us, we think are the wisdom things, material things, the philosophical things, the intellectual things, the things where we would put our hope are so often foolishness because they have no power to set us free, no power to give us eternal life with God, no power to see us forgiven, no power to see us uh, identified within our suffering. Paul's saying the real wisdom is the power of the cross. And whilst that might appear foolish to those who believe, it is the power of God. The power of God to forgive, to liberate, to reconcile, to set free, to identify. So Paul is saying that the power of the cross can be at work in these people in Corinth. And he says some of the things that it can do. It can lift the weak. It can be redemption. It can lift us out of our weakness into strength and courage and a life of significance. And my thought is this. We need to allow the power of the cross to be at work in us if we want to experience God, to encounter him, and for to be all that he wants us to be. Without that power, our lives, I think, will always fall short of what they could be. And through God's Holy Spirit, which is his presence with us today, that power can be at work in us. So I finish with a really simple, but I think deeply profound question. And my question is this. Where do you need the power of God and the power of the cross specifically? Where do you need the power of the cross to be at work in your life? Where do you need the power of the cross to be work in your life? Are you suffering and you need the power of the cross where Jesus identifies with those who are suffering? Are you, do you feel evil crowding in around you? Are you enslaved to an addiction that's eating up your life or fearful of something? need the power of the cross where Jesus defeated evil to be at work in your life? Do you need freedom? Do you feel tied up or imprisoned by something? You need to allow the power of the cross to work in you to give you freedom. Do you need redemption or forgiveness? Do you feel guilty about something and you need redemption or forgiveness for that? You need to allow the power of the cross to be at work in you for that. Do you need reconciliation with God or with somebody else? Do you need to allow the power of the cross where Jesus reconciles us to God to be at work in your life? Or do you just need to know that someone loves you and you need the cross to be reminded that God loves you? God loves you enough to give his son for you. Where do you need the power of the cross to be at work in your life?